On the 15th of August 2016, a lot of people in the field of biblical scholarship were rocked by an announcement that Erdman's Publishing made. Now, in order for you to appreciate this story, I have to give you a little bit of a back story. This takes me all the way back to Memphis, Tennessee, Harding School of Religion at the time. And Dr. Oster had assigned us in our syllabus a commentary on the book of Ephesians, the class we were taken by Peter O'Brien, also known as P.T. O'Brien. And there was an awful lot of griping and complaining because this was an expensive commentary. You know, when, when it comes to commentaries, you don't want to spend $60 if you can spend $10. So everybody was griping and complaining to Dr. Oster. Could he not find a cheaper commentary? And Oster said, in all of the scholarship and all the research that has been done in the book of Ephesians, nobody has done as thorough and as good of a job as P.T. O'Brien. So yes, you must buy the commentary. And so that's why on August 16th, 2016, myself and many other people were shocked when Erdman's released a press statement saying that they, upon their own review and upon the review of a secondary source, had concluded that much of P.T. O'Brien's Ephesians commentary had in fact been plagiarized. And so what they were going to do as a result is that they were going to destroy every copy they had on hand they were no longer going to sell his commentary. And if you had a commentary, you could, to the rejoicing of every graduate student who was forced to buy it, you could return it at the manufacturer's suggested retail price, and they would give you your money back for it. And of course, everybody was shocked. This person so well-known for his commentary on Ephesians and all of this happening. Uh, in a couple of days, P.T. O'Brien uh, gave his response. He said, I never deliberately misused the work of others. I now see that my work processes at the time have been faulty and have generated a clear-cut but unintended plagiarism. And the discussions began from there. Unintended plagiarism? How can you unintentionally plagiarize someone? And so that was the discussion for about a week or so until O'Brien came out and explained a little bit more about what he meant. One of his primary professors that he uh, studied with in his college years was a guy named F.F. F. Bruce. Before P.T. O'Brien's commentary, the best-known commentary on Ephesians was written by F.F. F. Bruce. And so P.T. O'Brien would spend hours in conversation and dialogue with F.F. F. Bruce. He, he read everything that Bruce wrote. In fact, they worked on some projects together, and he said he was so immersed in the world and the thinking of F.F. F. Bruce that when he wrote his commentary, a lot of it he didn't realize was things that he had just by osmosis began to think, began to write. Sometimes even quoting F.F. F. Bruce, thinking it was his own memories and his own writings. Now, now whatever you think about P.T. O'Brien, his, his rationale for this plagiarism, whether you think it was or it wasn't, it does serve a point which is when we spend ample amounts of time around people, it's highly likely that we begin to change in ways that we become more like them. We begin to reflect the kind of people they are. We begin to think like they think. In fact, I think that that's the point that John is going to make in our text this morning. 
as he, as he introduces us to what's happening in the congregation, I, I think this is John's thesis statement. Now by this, we may be sure that we know him if we obey his commands. See, we get the sense as we read 1 John that there are people who are making statements and confessions and professions, and they think that those statements and confessions and professions ought to just be able to stand on their own, and everyone ought to accept it. People are saying things like, I have come to know him. I abide in him. I am in the light. And in fact, this group of people, it seems like, who have come to this, this extra realization of their relationship with God, now are treating others in the body as if they were nothing. The language John uses is says they're hating their brothers. And so for some people, they felt like as long as I get the right answer, as long as I have the right belief, how I treat you doesn't matter because I know him. I abide in him. And I am in the light. And the congregation is left wondering if that could be the case. Have you ever experienced someone who felt like as long as they had the right answer, it didn't matter how they treated you, how they acted towards you? I know what I'm talking about. You don't, so I'm going to treat you like you're a lesser person. You know, Martin Luther, who's kind of well-known for his role in the Reformation, one of the things that's less well-known about Luther was he could cut criticisms with the best of them. People would say he could cut down an oak tree just with his words. He was so biting and sharp in what he would say. And so here's a few things that Luther wrote to some of those who, um, who came to oppose him. You are the worst rascal of all the rascals on earth. You people are more stupid than a block of wood. Even if the Antichrist appears, what greater evil can he do than what you have done and do daily? The reward of such flattery is what your crass stupidity deserves. Therefore, we shall turn from you a sevenfold stupid and blasphemous person. Don't think he liked him very much. Take care, you evil and wrathful spirits. God may obtain, um, God may ordain that in swallowing you may choke to death. You ever met people like that? I'm right, you're wrong. And then how they treat people is so infused with hatred as they make their case for their righteousness. I know him. I abide in him. I am in the light and here's how I'm going to show it by this sort of evil treatment of others. See, there's some people who think that being right is all that matters. And what John is going to do is he's going to bring together these two things, and he's saying being right matters, but also behaving right matters. And in fact, John is going to give the congregation some tools and resources that they can know how to test these claims. And testing these claims are not on the basis of the statement, John is not saying, if anybody says, I have come to know him, you say, no, you can't. Or if somebody says, I abide him, you say, no, you can't. John is saying those statements are all true, but they're also all conditional statements. And they need to be backed up by a certain kind of behavior. And so that's why John offers his thesis. By this, we may be sure that we know him if we obey his commands. 
To claim to know him, that one might say, I know him. The word to know there is in the perfect tense, and it's important for us to recognize this is a word that has, it has completed action, but it also has ongoing results. It's kind of like if you've bought a home, you've likely at some point in your house agreed to take on a mortgage. The mortgage is a decision in the past. You may have signed the papers two years ago or five years ago or ten years ago, but you made a decision in the past. But that decision in the past has ongoing effects on your life today, doesn't it? Every month they want you to write another check or send a little more money. This perfect tense has this sense that, that whatever happens in the past, decisions made in the past, will bleed forward into the present day. And so John is saying if we say we know him, that's a past decision that has present ramifications, present implications. So, so if I say I know him and I've come to know him, then my life today should look different as a result of my knowing him. John says how that comes forward is in terms of what we do with his commands. So the claim to know him, that being either God or Christ or God in Christ, is not just making claims about the past. It's also making claims about the present, and it's going to produce a certain lifestyle. And so if we, if we claim that we know him, how will that claim be validated? It will be validated in the fact that we obey his commands. Now, as we speak of the commands here, one of the things that we recognize is that there's, there's a couple of ways that people handle these commands. And some, some will understand these commands to be really, really broad. Like everything morally that God has ever said... Some will say this is kind of like the law, that, that, that what you're going to do here to show that you know him is you're going to obey all of the commands that God's ever spoken. So it gives a very full and a very broad definition. But, but some will look at this and say that John is referring to a more specific or a more narrow thing when he's talking about the command. That, that, that he's not talking about everything, but John is saying, here, look at this, because remember... This is supposed to be something John is giving them to say, here's what you look for to know if a person really knows God. So what would a person look for? Is it it a broad thing or is it a a narrow thing? And this illustration helps me and it it may help you. Imagine a a mother and a daughter going to the grocery store. And as they're getting ready to get out of the car, mom looks at her daughter and she says, don't touch anything. Of course, the little girl gets in there and... I mean, it's a pyramid of apples, and it's amazing, and it's so tempting. And so she reaches up, and she grabs one, and all the apples topple. Mom's upset. Mom looks at her and says, what did I tell you to do? Is mom saying, what are all the things in your whole entire life I've told you to do? Or is mom referring to something specific? In that context, we'd say she's referring to something specific like what? Don't touch anything. And so here we find that, that John, as he begins talking about the commandment, he's going to talk about it in very specific and in very narrow ways. So look, for example, in 1 John three twenty three, And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Or 1 John four twenty one, The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. 
seems in fact very reflective of what Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So it seems to me that the testing statement that John gives us, somebody says, if they claim to say, I know him, that's going to be seen in their obedience of his command to do what? To love one another. That's the test case. That's the things that people are supposed to look at and say, are they loving one another? Because that will show whether they do, in fact, know God or not. Those who say they know God, that will be seen in the ways that they love one another. We've got to be careful. When it comes to loving God and loving one another, we can get the order mixed up sometimes far too easily. Some people will completely disregard the whole knowing God thing and just say, you've got to show me this love for one another. I think John is making it very clear. Unless we know the love of God we will not be able to love one another. So, so to focus on just saying, hey, who cares about your relationship with God? Just show that you love one another and then follow that back and therefore that means you love God. That's not John's point. John's point is not do these works to prove that you love God. He's saying if you do love God, something is naturally going to flow out of it. What will flow out of it? Love for one another. See, the first move is always knowing God. It's abiding in Him. It's being in the light. And the kinds of people who know God and the kinds of people who abide in Him and the kinds of people who are in the light are going to be the kinds of people who do what? They will love one another. And that love then is a reflection that a person has truly been changed by their knowledge of God. So some of you might say, well, I, I don't really know how to love because I never had a good example. My parents weren't great parents, and they never taught me what love looks like. John does not say, know your parents and you'll know what love is. Even if you had the best parents, they're not an example of perfect love, are they? Were there times that your parents didn't do what they were supposed to do? But when we look at God the Father, what we find there is perfect love. That's where we're supposed to learn what love looks like. As we focus ourselves on God. That's why John tells us in, in 2.5 about this, this one in whom the love of God has reached perfection. I like the way the NIV says that God's love is truly made complete in him. What is in this person is God's love. So they've come to know God and the kind of love that God has. And that love becomes their very own love. And now they're being perfected by the love of God. So they're not being perfected by the love of others. They've not created their own love. I think of the, um, uh, of the movie A River Runs Through It where it's kind of like you've got to get your own little fishing technique and your own little fishing style. That's not what we're being called to do. We're being called to imitate the love of God, to perfect that, not to, to create our own form of love, but instead it comes out of God. And, and, and we see that movement happening as John even continues on as he talks about this confusing thing. Isn't it? Now, I just want you guys to know I'm not giving you a new commandment. This is an old one. And then the very next verse, what does it say? Oh, by the way, this is a new commandment. Does that confuse anyone else? 
What we come to find is that this new commandment is true in Him. In Him is in Christ. So, so the command to love one another, it's been around for an awfully long time. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're familiar with the command to love others. But this love is a love that is found in Him. It is new because it is a love unlike anything we've ever witnessed because it's in the flesh of Jesus Christ. The ways that Christ shows and he exemplifies God's love. See, under the, in the Old Testament, we never saw such a pure expression of the love of God aside from what's been expressed in Christ. It's, the gospel story is the story of God showing his love for mankind through this self-giving action. Paul tells us it's not when we were righteous that God did this for us. It's while we were yet sinners. And if we come to know God and we come to know Christ, what we encounter is a love that is new in a way this world has never seen. More clear, more self-giving, and more consistent. And it's that experience with the depths of the Father's love that is supposed to change those of us who are disciples and followers. See, I don't think we can ever really learn to love others until we fully know God's love. And that love is at work within us. And I think that's what the story of the prodigal son actually illustrates. I'm going to operate under the assumption that most of us are familiar with that. This son runs away, takes his inheritance. He says essentially to his dad, I mean, I... I'd be just fine if you were dead. I just need your money. That's about what I need from you. And he runs off and he wastes it all. And he finds himself in a pretty desperate situation. And it's in Luke 15, 17 through 19. The son says this. He says, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. Now it's possible some see conversion here. Maybe I'm just skeptical. Maybe I've just been around this type of person a little too often. But it seems to me that the son is still scheming. This is a son who schemes. This is a son who is charismatic. He gets his way and he finds out the best position he can be in is by going back and making an apology to his dad and going. And if it's one of my kids, I'm concerned about that. They're coming back and they're apologizing and now they want a hired hand job. But we're told when the son returns... Luke 15, 20, while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. That's the display of the love of God, isn't it? This is pre-apology. This is pre, here's all the reasons why you should have me back in your house. This son should not have been treated this way. And yet the father runs out to him. And I think it's in that moment that the son actually experiences the love of the father. And I think it's that experience of the love of the father that in fact transforms him. Because what does he say after that? He gives his speech, but he doesn't give all of his speech. He does in fact apologize to the father. He says, I have sinned against heaven before you. 
But he does not say, treat me like one of your hired hands. That was his speech, right? I'm going to go and I'm going to do this and then dad's going to treat me like one of his hires. That was the end goal. And now he just says, I'm sorry. It's almost as if the display of the love of the father is so great he realizes I have no right to ask anything of him. Because my father loved me before I even apologized. And this is that great love of God that John is speaking of. That, that, that we would encounter the love of God and we would be fundamentally changed in our hearts and in our hearts in terms of how we relate to other people. It's hard to be in the presence of God and to know God, not to be touched by His love. Not to be transformed by God's love in such a way that it, it wants us to become more loving ourselves. I like the way Gary Holloway says, he says, falling in, lo in love with God always means falling in love with people. Because when we're in the presence of the heart of the loving God, it fundamentally changes our view, not just of ourselves, but also of others. So John will say then, whoever says, I am in the light, while hating a brother or sister is still in darkness. And whoever loves a brother or sister lives in the light, and in such a person, there is no cause for stumbling. For John, our love for our Christian family is always a sign of the kind of relationship we have with God. How we treat one another, John is saying, is an example of how deeply we know God himself. Some people say of John, well, Jesus said love everyone, and John's just saying love people in the body of believers. That's the focus here. But, but I think that we recognize if we can't learn to love each other, who in so many ways there's overlaps of commonalities, there's so many things we share, what hope do we have in learning to love those outside are even more different. And so if we know God, that's going to be displayed in our love for one another. So I think of John here kind of like the first grade teacher. He's going to teach you to add and to subtract. And later maybe you can learn to multiply and divide. And the adding and subtracting, the, the very elements, elementary aspects of the Christian faith is learning to love the brothers and sisters with whom we sit beside on a weekly basis. And if we don't love one another, John will say you can trace that back and find out that what's happening is a person fundamentally does not love God. They must not abide in Him. And they must not be in the light. So how do you learn to love a person who's hard to love? See, this is the part of the sermon where I almost fell into a trap. I have a whole part of the sermon that got edited out. Because I was going to say, okay, you know, you do this and you look at them and you do this. and you." That's not what John is teaching. What John is saying, if you're having trouble loving people, don't worry about people. Spend more time with God. Know Him. Experience His love. 
Come to abide with Him. And it is in the presence of being with God. Start with God. Read, study, meditate on God's love. Remember all that God has done for you. Hear God's delight in you. And in that, out of that, comes love for other. If we focus on, i got to get this love for other piece working, apart from the love, knowing the love of God, we've gotten the cart backwards. John is saying spending time with God transforms who you are. So if you need to be transformed, what you need is more time with God. P.T. O'Brien said he spent so much time with F.F. Bruce that he started talking like him, writing like him, and thinking like him. People said that was plagiarism. And I guess I wonder... Is it possible that I could learn to start to love someone in such a way that someone say, Craig, you're plagiarizing the love of God. That's not your love. Because you guys have seen enough of me to know it's hard to do. I, I don't have in my own resources this love. But if it's God's love at work within us, that's what John's calling us to it's calling us to spend so much time in the presence of God that maybe even almost imperceptibly we learn to love people we thought we never could love. And that's the beauty of John's call and that's the beauty of John's message. And so the call for us, first of all, is what's your relationship with God like? Do you know him in such a way that it's seeping into your bones? Do you know him in such a way that, that as your blood pumps, it's beginning to be not just your blood, but it's the blood of Christ and the Spirit within you? Baptism is the place of union. Baptism is the place where, where we make that bond with God and God's love begins to be at work in us. And so if you have not yet been baptized, that's an invitation for you this morning. Or maybe you've already been baptized. Maybe you're hearing about love of God and love of others, and you're thinking, boy, that's a growth area for me. And you want somebody to pray with you? There'll be some folks in the back. Um, I'll be back there. Some of our elders will be back there. We turn to God. And as we come close to God, God does his work within us. Before we begin, finish, I'd like to end with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. This is a good news message because when we leave from here, we don't go by ourselves. We go equipped and empowered with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to respond, I encourage you to come forward. Come meet us in the back while we stand and sing this next song.